All right. Good morning. Happy long weekend. And uh, thank you so much for joining us in worship. And thank you, Val, for leading us too. And, and it's, it's not an age thing. We're so happy to have you here. We are so excited. There's no age limit to serving God and to leading everyone here in worship. It's amazing. Yeah, you don't act your age anyways. It's fine. Val's one of our top kids. Well, I'd call her a leader, but sometimes it's just playing and yelling and making all the actions even more vibrant. So it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking partway through we were going there, I, I, I felt, because we got, you know, we're connected with the ears and the lyrics and all the stuff around too, that we had a computer crash. And uh, there's two things I want to mention. One, I'm so thankful for our media team, because here's the thing about the media team. If they do their jobs perfectly, you have no clue. But if something goes wrong, you're like, oh, what's going wrong? They missed the thing. And actually, half the time, it's just Windows not playing nice with us. So by the way, actually, if you're here and you're willing to and looking to support and the work in ministry and computers of Cedar Valley Church, you can go to cedarvalley.ca slash give. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but not fully kidding. That is a piece where technology does wear out and get old and it stresses out our volunteers. <laughs> but thank you so much, team back there, for persevering through that. Thank you for singing and just being blessed by the words as well as they're coming through. And uh, we're here to share a message this morning. So uh, I just want to open up with asking a question here. You can answer if you want with raising of hands or uh, just even thinking in your head. Who here can tell the future? Do you know what's going on in the future? Probably know what's going on like a half an hour from now. You guess you're going to be sitting here 45 minutes from now. Maybe still sitting here. We'll see how I get through my notes. I think... Oh, Brian, you got something. Okay. Well, you spoiled the message. That is, in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we know, we know some things in the future are coming up. We know that God will always be the same. We know that, here's the thing, I think we actually see the future a little bit more often than we, we think. If you're out driving, you're constantly making predictions and assumptions of what other people are going to be doing, right? So who here has never been in a car crash? Like very few of us. So we're not actually good here at telling the future. I saw one hand up. So you got that gift. You got that gift. But maybe if you're not making the right assumptions, right, you could tell if somebody's like, that red Dodge is going to run the light. I know it. That's for sure. So you just back off a little bit and give them space. I think some of us have talents in investing, seeing trends, seeing what's going to go on. You kind of make assumptions, but uh, none of us are as good at telling the future as a cartoon animation. That's the longest running cartoon animation ever. And it, uh, The Simpsons came out in 1989. For those of you who don't know, it's a comedic social commentary with a bunch of yellow cartoon people that's just making fun of North American life in a lot of ways. And what's a funny thing about the show for 30-something seasons they've got going on is they have predicted a lot of future events a few years detached. Uh, stuff like they've correctly predicted the winning teams for three Super Bowls. They have uh, predicted big company purchases like Disney purchasing Fox and just about every other network TV, uh, TV network there is. And uh, like 18 years before that even happened, they predicted smartphone technology and stuff. Then people get all excited and think there's big conspiracies because they seem to predict a lot of political scandals and even political election results. Uh, they predicted President Trump by just a small gag joke in the early 90s. 
and even a few Nobel Prize winners. But here's the thing, when the show creators and writers are asked, and jokingly they say, you know, we have an inside line to the decade in the future, but most of the writers just say it's actually not very difficult to predict the future. They said it's pretty simple. For the most part, the real world, just being honest and blunt about what's going on around us, maybe adding a sprinkle of pessimism in there, and you can kind of guess what's going to happen the next year and the next year and the next year, right? And so what they say is like, greed will always be greedy, power will always seek power, politics swing, people overreact, and celebrities love spectacles. So if you use that truth, you can kind of guess most of what's happening, or in very similar words, from thousands of years earlier in the Old Testament, uh, King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The world actually seems to kind of move in a bit of a trajectory that, for the most part, we're not often that surprised. If you're honest with yourself, you're like, okay, that's what I thought was going to happen, and it happened, right? So we, we actually see into the future a little bit. But the, the blunt reality is, so that's kind of what it is. It's fairly set ahead of us. The nature of the universe kind of seems fairly linear, but that is unless you're curious about what it's like to live in a completely different future than what's going on around us. Anyone here interested in that? Like, no hands, so I don't have to finish my message this morning. That's great. <laughs> okay, okay. We'll do it for you, Val. Well, let's go into it. We are starting a series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, and for those of you who got your Bibles with you, or if you got your apps, it's the second book in the New Testament. And it's one of these books called the Gospels. And just as a quick overview for it, the Bible, big collection of books and written works, uh, histories and genealogies, everything from God creating the universe in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, God leading his people, giving instructions for life until we have the birth of Jesus. And then there we get into the New Testament. We have four books called the Gospels. And what they are is accounts of and retellings of the life and the work and the teachings of Jesus from four different perspectives four different people who gathered information, and they, these are all books that were written to uh, a specific audience in history. And uh, so that's a bit of a two-second summary of the Bible, but I just want to make sure we're all up to speed on that. And right now, we're, and then after that, Jesus, uh, Jesus' life, and he was persecuted, and uh, he was crucified, he died, and then he rose again from, from the grave. And after that, you have the spread of the church, you spread of the gospel message, and we're living in that era now. And so that's the rest of the New Testament. And so what we have is, for 2,000 years, we've been living in this area post-resurrection, but we're diving into the gospel of Mark. And so who knows what the word gospel means? Here. Karen. Yeah, easy, okay, perfect. Good news. Anyone else got like an augmented version of that? You want to get real academic and scholarly? Who knows the Greek word? Here's a test. Three years ago, if you're paying attention, we did a study on this. I know, I forgot it even too, so I had to look it up. The, the word for gospel is euangelion. Who could say that? Euangelion. And it, it's not actually a churchy word. Jesus didn't invent this word. Christianity didn't invent this word. This was actually a very political and journalistic word. So what, what would have happened is every time there was a new Caesar or a new ruler in the land, there would have been a, an euangelion would have gone out saying, like, here's the new ruler, here's the new Caesar, he's going to make everything right, he's going to fix everything, he is the greatest and the best and the son of God. We don't, so in Canada, we don't really get that stoked and passionate about our politics. Like we, I think our neighbors to the south, they've got mantras and slogans and hats and everything for it. I, the farthest we really get in terms of our passion is like strong opinions about a specific prime minister that fits on the back of a pickup truck. 
right? You, you know what I'm talking about. But in, the, in, in this context, the gospel or a gospel was just a statement of saying, here's an amazing thing that's happened. Here is good news, literally the right translation for it. And it's good news about a specific person who is going to change everything. And so when you read the gospels, that's what it is. Like this is a journalistic piece of work of somebody saying, here's the good news about the king, about the ruler, about the person who's going to change absolutely everything. And so we're reading the Gospel of Mark over the next six weeks, and what we're going to be doing is following the disciples closely and specifically looking at the ways Jesus called his disciples, the way Jesus trained his disciples, and then the ways Jesus sends his disciples. And I get to start this all off this morning. So I've got four messages worth of work here that we're going to get through, but I want to start off by just reading where we're focusing on this morning is in Mark chapter 1. And this is the first calling. So when Jesus called his first disciples, so it's Mark chapter 1, verse 16, and we're going to go up to verse 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, Jesus, he called them and left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So let's just pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel messages. God, for the Bible that gives us this information. God, that gives us this testimony, this account, this gospel, this good news that we can learn from and grow from. God, I just pray that you speak through this passage this morning. God, God, I pray that you just give us ears eager to hear something life-changing, God, something that we can bring into our own lives, God, and something that we can bring out to those around us. In your name, amen. So whenever you're reading the Bible, I want to just provide a little bit of a Bible study tool for all of you. Whenever you're reading anything in the Bible, there's always three levels of narrative going on. Who here likes Christopher Nolan movies? Like Oppenheimer just came out, Inception, right? Confusing, you have like, so if you haven't seen that and you're like, I don't know why he's talking about movies again, there's people that go into somebody's dream, but then apparently in that dream, you can go into somebody's dream who's in the dream, and then you can actually go into somebody's dream who's in the dream who's in the dream. You got all these layers of stuff, and it gets confusing, and time changes each time, and there's different meanings. So he's a director who loves making things really confusing, But when you're reading the Bible, there's three levels of narrative that are really important to look at and learn from. And here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. You don't have to know any of that to still be blessed and impacted by the message, by the words. But if you want to really get into it and have a lot of fun like I do and spend hours writing up 30 minutes of stuff to talk about, you use these kind of tools to just learn more depth. So there's three pieces. The first layer is the original account, what actually happened. Like when you're reading the Bible, the gospel message here, this is Jesus going up and just talking to, inviting the disciples. They're, they're fishing and like the moment that actually happened. The next layer is the fact that the Bible is a written work for a specific audience. And, and I like this quote here actually, the Bible wasn't written for us, or sorry, it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. Because see, the thing is, like, the Bible, the Gospel of Mark was written to a very specific audience. God and the Holy Spirit worked through Mark saying, this is going to bless people way beyond what you think. But the author of the Gospel of Mark wrote it to a specific audience. So then thinking of that context, who was reading this for the first time ever? And then the last here is us. 
And we, we got to take 2,000 years of history and culture shift around the world and figure out how does this actually mean life change in my life. And that's usually where we stay and start, but there's an amazing amount of depth we can get if we go to the other pieces as well. So we're going to spend about 20 minutes in each section. 10 minutes. It's kind of warm today, actually. 10 minutes. We'll go through it. But let's start off with the original account, what actually happened. So Jesus calls his first disciples. And it, especially if you've grown up in the church, like, I know the story. Jesus called fishermen, right? Because fishermen, they're fun. They're humble. They're, they're doing their thing. And Jesus is like, I want fun, humble men and not just the big scholarly a- academic nerds. I want real people. So he called fishermen and brought them along and made them his disciples. But there's a, a few more things going on here because so you got to understand the original history and the context of what it was like to be a young Jewish man in this area of Galilee, well, in all of Israel and Judea. There was an education system. So the education system, not unlike ours where we have elementary school, high school, university, but it had a bit of a different focus. So the very first level was called Bet Hasifer, which means house of the book. And this is where all kids would go to. So up until about age 12, all kids would go into this, girls and boys, and they would essentially memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they just memorize it. This, this was oral, so they weren't writing out the stuff, but they would just spend years learning the Torah. And by the time they were there, 12 years old, that was kind of it. The vast majority of kids would then go on into adult life, right? Because you're 12 years old, you're ready for life. So the girls would go, essentially, they would be, they'd live with their mom until they get married, and then uh, they would start a family. And, you know, so those, you know, if you, if you know middle schoolers and they're complaining about life right now, it was much harder then. Because then the guys would go into their, their business, family business, and be tradesmen, fishermen in this case. And so that's, that was the majority. But if you were excellent at it, if you just excelled, and you, often you actually could finish memorizing everything early, You'd go on to the next level, which is kind of like a little bit like the high school called Bet Talmud, which means house of learning. And that's where you would just dive into the rest of all the Old Testament. And you would learn all of the prophets and all of the histories, all the kings and all the lineages and all the genealogies. You would learn the wisdom literature and all the poetry. And you just, all, all the Bible, like it's a culture shaped around the Old Testament and all of these scriptures. And so that was what the, the elite few would do, uh, studying in a synagogue or underneath a rabbi. And this was specific if a village could afford this kind of education, if the family could afford it, and if you excelled enough to be part of that. And then the last, and so then about age 16, 17, you'd graduate out of that. And then you were, you'd go on to teaching, you'd go on to something a little bit more academic, professional. But that also was usually it for everyone. That's kind of about it where you top out. But for the very select few, and this was driven more by the student, there was another level. And what would happen is if you were super driven, this was what you were going to make your life about, you would end up traveling to Jerusalem or somewhere close with a high scholarly presence, and you would find a rabbi and you would just follow them around. And you would just become a teacher's pet. You would just suck up to them until you get their attention. And then they would start quizzing you and asking you questions and seeing if you're worthy of them investing and putting time into you. And, and you'd spend a ton of time doing that, doing all the errands, right? Like just a good intern. You just put all the work and all the effort. And if they chose you, so the elite of the elite of the elite select few, if they chose you to be a disciple, they would invite you into discipleship, 
where you would spend years with them, essentially aiming to, so the word disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes, which is where we get the word math from, which just means learning. And you just become a learner of, but the goal is it's much more focused, it's much more intense. It is to become like a clone of. You learn the words they say, their mannerisms, the stuff they do, the ways they do it, the people they like, the people they don't like, the scriptures. You learn every single thing about the person you're being discipled under, your rabbi. And the goal is after this time, hopefully you are good enough to send off and just become a clone of whomever that rabbi was and then you get to do the next thing for others after that. And uh, so that, that's discipleship. Now, here's the thing. When we go back to read the story here, Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting an end to the lake. They were fishermen. Mark doesn't waste words. He's saying they were fishermen. They did the first thing of school and that was it. And they're like, hey, family business time. We're gonna get out fishing. Don't think of them as poor either. Galilee was actually known for high quality fish product. This was shipping all over the known world. They were doing well. They, this is, they got into trades, they were doing fine. They were doing well. But they had no chance at discipleship. So now you can kind of see when, when Jesus comes all of a sudden, he offers something amazing that was completely out of reach for them and would have never really been considered. And is actually completely unheard of for a rabbi, for someone like Jesus to come and just out of the blue invite, say, hey, do you want to be my disciples? Come follow me. It's the same words he was using there. And uh, some translations will just say, be my disciples. And, and you can kind of get a sense why they instantly drop their nets. Now, this other line too, Jesus says, I will teach you to fish for people. I think often we read that thinking like, oh, what a fun pun, Jesus. You nailed it, right? Way to go. But one of my favorite bands is called Need to Breathe, and there's uh, one of their best songs, they say the line, Need to Breathe, and at a live concert, everyone's like, yeah, you said the name and the thing, and it's kind of like a fun pun, it comes full circle. But this was actually a common idiom that would be used, essentially saying, I'll teach you to fish for people, I'll teach you to make your own disciples. And it, so it was just, it was a way that a rabbi would call, it's just a perfect setup. Jesus probably saw it, he's like, yeah, fishermen, this is gonna go in the Bible, 2,000 years, people are going to read it. It's going to be perfect. I'll teach you to fish for people. Way better. And so they drop their nets instantly. Like, this is a chance of a lifetime. And I wonder, how has somebody believing in you, giving you the chance of a lifetime, shaped you? Can you consider any of those moments for somebody who just saw something in you that you wouldn't have seen in yourself, and it just really excelled? I actually was just reflecting on this, too. And, and I don't know that I've ever fully verbalized gratitude but a thanks to this church for growing and being flexible and experimental and honestly for an entire year last year letting someone like me be the sole pastor for a year with like no clue what I'm doing, inexperienced, new father, so I'm just sleep deprived and you guys are like, sure, we'll let him do it all. That's okay, he can figure it all out. The office and preaching and you know, whatever, plan a family camp. But you believed in me, or actually there's a couple things. I think you knew that this church is in God's hands and not mine, which is perfect. I think if it was in my hands, that'd be way scarier. But you also, you believed in me, which helped me grow more than I had in seven, eight years previous of ministry and work, made, challenged me in a place where I was thinking, you know what, I could go back to masonry, stone masonry, like made good work. That's what Jesus did, right? So it's already an ordained profession. It was nice just building fireplaces and rock walls. But then there was this calling instead that said, we, we see something in you, I didn't, and I think I'm still growing into it, but thank you, church, for being faithful in that. And then even taking a further leap of faith and uh, hiring another young pastor. 
You know, that's great. So uh, it's that this is living out some of Jesus's values of calling people before that they're before they've become the elite of the elite of the elite of the elite, saying, "I know that you're creating the image of God. I know God can do something through you. So I'll give you that calling." But then the second part here too, I think, is even better. So. You know, Simon and Andrew, chance of a lifetime, they jumped at it. But then uh, verse 19, when Jesus went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets in the middle of a day of work. And what we see after, they were working with their father. This is a family business, probably passed on for generations and generations, family business, and doing well with hired men. This is probably a small fleet. Like, this is a good, booming business. And Jesus didn't wait a moment. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father's ebony and all of that. And now here's a bit of the challenge, because I think we often think of discipleship as a bit of a fun buzzword. Like, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and it's fun. You know, I like him. Jesus is awesome, and I do some of the things he says, and it's great. This is a pretty meaty, massive call, because we have a lot of comforts in our life. We have jobs that work well. We have homes. We have stuff around us that we like. And James and John had that. They had it all. They had everything in front of them. They knew the future and the path that was in front of them. And it wasn't bad. There's nothing wrong with being a fisherman. There's nothing wrong with being a successful fisherman. But then Jesus called them, and they up and left everything. And I think it's because they were longing for a different future, even than the one they had. Often, I think we think we've got pretty sweet futures in front of us. It's fine. We know what's coming up, and it's, it's okay. But they were in tune with the scriptures from the studies they did. They were in tune with the God of the universe, and they were eager for something bigger, too. So they up and left everything. Jesus offered them an opportunity and a future that made them so quickly jump up into uncertainty that he would make them adopt this new future because they were giving up everything and going towards it. That's what discipleship looks like. So that's the first level. That's what happened. Now we get a bit of a better picture for what happened. The next level is the original audience. So the Gospel of Mark, most scholars say this is probably the earliest and most reliable gospel of the four gospels that's been written down uh, in about the early 50s or 60s. I don't mean the 1950s or 60s, like the original 50s and 60s AD. Uh, just a couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, first-hand witness accounts, people are talking about it, and the word of the, the Jesus' gospel has spread all over the place. If you read the book of Acts in the New Testament, you see the spread of the early church, and then the gospel of Mark is written specifically to Christians who are facing a very, very difficult time of life. So often we think it's kind of awkward to be a Christian because there's a bit of a cultural shame and there's judgment and politics. But there was persecution in the 50s and 60s uh, under Caesar, under the uh, ruler Nero. And some of you might know from just the histories and the uh, mythologies and everything about Nero, who was one of the most ruthless rulers of the time with a specific hatred for Christians. Here's an excerpt from Tacitus, who was a historian at the time, said this about Nero. So this is just after talking about Nero. There's this famous fire in Rome, Nero's fire, and he had tried to blame this on Christians, and it didn't go. So Tacitus says, yet no human effort, no princely largesse or offerings to the gods could make this infamous rumor disappear that Nero had somehow ordered this fire. So therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero accused and executed those with the most exquisite punishments, those people called Christians. 
Therefore, first, those, first they were seized, those who admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude of them were convicted, and convicted not so much for the crime of burning the city, but put on the state for a public display of being those who hated the human race. These are the Christians how Nero tried to portray them. And perishing, they were additionally made into sports. Nero created all these sports. They were killed by dogs having hides of animals attached to them and running through gardens. They were nailed to crosses and at night set on fire to be used as lamps. Nero gave his own land to be used for this spectacle. To the point the accounts actually go on saying that even those people, the Romans hated Christians because of the stuff Nero spread about them, but it was so ruthless that even the Romans started to pity and, and feel bad for the Christians. It was so awful. This, was the, this is what the Christians were going through, and they were dying by the millions, not even the, ten, not even the thousands, the hundreds, the millions, in a land of the known area than that Western world of about 70 million people. A significant portion of the population was dying for their faith. And so the author, Mark, decided to write this gospel. He hears all this going on. He's like, I'll write a book. Because that's, you know, what encourages us when we're facing the most intense, worst times of our lives. This was not a great time to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, people didn't recant, and they kept spreading the message. So this gives us the context. Mark is writing a gospel to people who were likely going to die for their faith. And what he wanted to do was give them an image of a future that is not like the future they see in front of them, not like a future guided and bound by the world, but a future bound in Jesus. And here's how Mark provides encouragement. We have to actually back up to Mark 1, verse 1. If you got your Bibles just a page back or if you're on the app, scroll up a little bit. But just the very, very beginning, we get the sense of it because... Back in the day, writing wasn't easy and cheap. You don't have pages and printers. You don't waste words. So the very first sentence or a couple sentences in any book in the Bible will tell you a synopsis of everything that's going on. And so the very first thing that Mark says in, verse, in chapter 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Some translations, or directly from the Aramaic, in the beginning, there was the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Does that ring any bells? It should trigger some things. If, if, if you've been reading your Bible, maybe you haven't. That's fine. I'll, I'll explain it to you. This would have triggered for a lot of people in a culture that studies the scripture hugely, this would have triggered echoes to the very first thing in, that they would have studied in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what's happening, if you know those scriptures... And the story of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, created Eden. He created this amazing world where people live, God lives with people, this amazing garden of Eden. This is heaven and earth combined. But then he gave us free will because he didn't want to make us puppets. And that free will turned into sin. Sin corrupted the world, and now we have evil, and we have death, and we have suffering, and all the things wrong with the world. And that is the history we're living in, and that is the future we see ahead of us, is in a is in a deconstructed, decreated, broken world full of sin. And now Mark is saying, it's starting over. Here is a new creation. Here's a new moment. In the beginning, there's the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This is new creation. I actually love the way a children's book, a children's Bible, we gave these out a couple weeks ago with a children's dedication to all the families, all the parents, kind of gives a summary. The author says, this is... Uh, Jesus is making all the bad things come untrue. This is the new creation. 
So remember, the whole goal of discipleship is becoming like a rabbi and, and following everything and thinking the way he thinks. And the goal of now the disciples, Mark is saying, the path of following Jesus is becoming a disciple and you will start to see Jesus' future. It's kind of fun now, too, when you know these things, you can understand if you, if, you, if you get a Bible for the first time, or if you've never read it, we have Bibles, I'd love to provide you with one. Don't start from the very beginning. Start in the Gospels. Start in the Gospel of Mark, even, and read that, and then go back to Genesis. And it's kind of like, you know, we have all these movies that come out of order, Star Wars. We have the original trilogy, but then there's the prequels, and you kind of see the stuff out of order. Start with Jesus the new creation, the creation with hope, the creation that provides a future of hope and a future that affects eternity, and then go back and learn about what happened initially and what was destroyed and what Jesus is recreating. This is how many Romans or Gentiles, the New Testament says, would have heard it first. They would have heard about Jesus, and then they would have gone back and learned all about this God, Yahweh, and all about the creation, and all about the stuff that happened in sin. But they would have first heard about Jesus, and about a better future, and about eternity and salvation. And now we're still living in this kind of post-Eden, sin-ruled world where there is promise ahead of us, but we're still also in a world full of sin. That's why we feel this wrestle. We, we kind of know the bad things going on. We know the good things going on around us, but there's a bit of a wrestle because we're part of a finite linear timeline, but God has designed us to be part of an eternal timeline. Anyways, let's go to the third part. So we have the original context. We've got the recipients of the letter initially, those persecuted Christians who needed to hear about this new future, who needed to hear about this new creation that would provide them hope. And then the whole rest of the Gospel of Mark has this theme of new creation all throughout it. It's beautiful. It's saying, here's Jesus making all the bad things come untrue. Here is the new creation designed in Jesus where God is restoring it. This is his win after thousands of years of of warring and destruction and sacrifice and sin and falling away from God and God redeeming and back and forth. It's centered on Jesus. And now we're here 2,000 years later reading this, reading the Gospel of Mark post the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, post the Holy Spirit coming, post the printing press, which provides us with Bibles, post tablets and technologies, which provides us with all this stuff around us. And we can see and read the entire gospel. And this is one of the things that struck me that I think we can grow in and learn from today. Are we fans of Jesus? Do we believe in Jesus? Or are we disciples of Jesus? That's the difference. You can believe in Jesus without being a disciple. In fact, throughout all the gospels, this was a, I loved, one scholar said, throughout all the gospels, there was hundreds and thousands of fans of Jesus. There was even his close disciples. They all had disastrous theology. They were all disasters all over the place. Lots of people believed in Jesus, but also the demons believed in Jesus, and they were the only ones who actually had proper theology and understanding of who Jesus was. Believing in Jesus is not actually the goal in this. Discipleship to Jesus is the goal. Taylor Swift is on what a lot of people are, I don't know, talk about Jesus, and I'm going to talk about Taylor Swift now on what a lot of people are saying is probably the biggest tour of all time, the Eras Tour, 146 stadium shows over two and a half years, filling 80,000 to 120,000 people per show. And they estimate in the US alone, 14 million fans, uh, when the Ticketmaster sales opened up, they crashed the website and it was down for two days. 
there is, Taylor Swift has a lot of fans. Now here's the thing, do you have any idea how much the tickets for these shows cost? Yeah, an average of about $1,200. It's insane. I think it's a pretty cool show. I've seen some video clips of it, $1,200. And now what they found, I was actually following a story of somebody who has tried to get on every single US showing. That was like a $14,000 investment. It's incredible. There's a lot of fans Taylor Swift has got, but she's got a couple diehards who are in there, who are giving their whole life savings to it. In that same kind of way, no, in a completely different kind of way, but in the same kind of way, there's a difference between being a fan of Jesus. I think that's really popular. I like Jesus, he's chill, he, he loves people, he gives us good instructions on life, you know, he challenges us a little bit, but I like Jesus, right? I, I'll believe in him. But to drop everything, to have your life refocused and recentered and changed, to take your comforts and to completely abandon the future you see ahead of you and to adopt Jesus' future, which honestly we don't have a clue of until we really get in close with him, that's discipleship and that's the call. And I think a lot of us don't really like that, especially in our world. I think in our Western world, we think about what's coming ahead for us. But in Jesus' world, in the way God designed us to be communal creatures, a lot of times the future in Jesus, the future that God provides for us, isn't actually just about us. Go figure. It's actually about humanity. It's actually about a much bigger picture. And it's about generations. It's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. A lot of people were hoping Jesus would come back like a year later after he rose from the grave. Holy Spirit came like, hey, Jesus, come back right now. But Jesus said, no, no, I know a way bigger picture of what's going on. And we just sang this morning, your families and your children and their children and their children and their children. The future Jesus provides for us costs us a lot, but it's not just about us. It's about way more. It's about all around the world. It's about internationally, international connections of the gospel. It's about people who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus throughout many generations. And, and that's a wrestle. I think that's why the message and the gospel of Jesus is so uncomfortable. It's easy to be a fan of Jesus. It's difficult to be a disciple of Jesus. We don't want to make someone else our king, our everything. We don't want to clone ourselves from somebody else. All the language in our world says, just, just be you, be you, be an excellent you, right? Be a famous you. But then imagine the God of the universe, if you get yourself into that fan club mindset, you gotta consider the God of the universe giving you the invitation of saying, hey, come along on my right-hand side. This would be like being an Amazon delivery driver. Jeff Bezos giving you a phone call and said, hey, you wanna come be my number one assistant? You can even take, on, take the super yacht out for a spin whenever you want. Like, this is a big moment and we need to consider it carefully. A buddy of mine recently had this exact conflict in his life a couple years ago, uh, actually during the pandemic when he was forced to spend time just by himself and with his family, right? It just makes you really wrestle with things. And he, was, he believed in Jesus, he was a fan. He'd kind of oscillate a little bit back and forth between. And then it started to really hit him reading through the gospels. I'm not a disciple because being a disciple costs way more than I'm offering up. This was a guy with a family, he had his house, he had the dog, he had cars, he had a business that was thriving, several decades of investment in. He was doing well. And he realized, he's like, I haven't given up very much to Jesus, a tiny little bit. I'm not really a disciple. And so then he, he began on a pathway, he began fasting and praying and, and being an example to his family of pursuing discipleship. And where that's led him is to, in a couple weeks, actually, he and his entire family right now, they're packing up their entire home, every single thing they got, they're putting it in stores, they're selling their cars, they're selling all the stuff they don't need because they're going to live in Cambodia 
for years to care for uh, young girls who have been pulled out of the evils and the horrors of sex trafficking, working with an organization called Ally Global. That's discipleship. Now, that doesn't mean God is calling all of us to literally remove everything, but for him, they're doing this with a smile. Kind of like we read that story too where James and John, they just leave their father and all their stuff. This is, is fascinating with my buddy. This is actually like, it's a little bit ostracizing for even some of his family, extended family. They're saying, why are you leaving us? We want our grandkids to stick around. Our, their friends are saying, what are you doing with your business, man? This is the dumbest decision you've ever made. But they said, no, actually, my future in Jesus is bigger than what is around here for me. And he started to get a taste of eternity. He started to get a taste of the gospel and the future that Jesus provides. Because here's the thing. It costs a lot to follow Jesus, but it actually costs way more to not follow Jesus. It costs a lot to follow Jesus, but it costs more to not follow Jesus because we, again, we see the life ahead of us as a finite linear thing. We got about 60 to 80, 90 years, a bit more if we're blessed on this planet. But God sees us as designed in his image. He sees us as people designed for eternity with him. He sees us as designed for eternity with impact for generations. And that's the kind of future we give up. So here's the big picture. I just want to kind of, this can sound heavy, this can sound intense, the invitation that Jesus provides and God's grace is to save all of us, all, of, all those who are enamored, those who will believe in him. The Bible tells us, and this is what I do believe, that God's grace is amazing and that those who will believe and accept Jesus' gift of salvation, that does provide you access into eternity. But you miss out on God's design for your life, God's design for what humanity can actually look like, what he's created the human to be. See, when, when a rabbi calls a disciple... He says, I see in you potential to be me. Jesus says to all of us, and this is why I love even in small little bits where Mark says, without hesitation, he saw some fishermen in their thing, he's, without hesitation, he called them. What almost seems like out of the blue, God sees in you and me later on in the gospel of Mark. He says, if anyone would be my disciple, they need to deny themselves, and give, he gives the whole speech of how challenging it is. We'll get to that later in this study. But God sees in you and me the potential to be like him. Can you imagine that? We say that thing like it's a fun buzzword, it's a bumper sticker, but the miracles he performed, the healings, the wisdom he had, and lastly, rising from God, raising him from the dead and recreating and redesigning his body. So the gospel starts off with Jesus coming in and here's a new creation story and it ends with a complete recreated body that is now in heaven and as a new being. The disciples who spent three years daily, like every single minute and second with Jesus, barely recognized Jesus because of the new creation he was. It costs a lot to follow Jesus, but it costs more to not because you miss out on eternity and you miss out on God's design. So here's, here's the challenge I wanna give for all of us as we're starting off this series, as we go from here for this morning, as we enjoy the long weekend. If this is intriguing to you, let's dive in. Through the next six weeks, we're going to be studying in Mark. Read the Gospel of Mark closely a few times. It's a shorter gospel. That's why, you know, we picked it. It's one of the shorter ones. Gospel of Matthew, amazing, long-winded, just expands on everything that Mark said. It's like 99% Mark, but with just like 20 more chapters. Read the Gospel of Mark a lot. 
See Jesus in it. And don't read it the way we do here in the Western world where we read of like, okay, where am I at this? And I, I would pick that side of the battle. No, read it to just meet Jesus and see Jesus and give it a chance. Like my friend did. Start seeking after Jesus and give an honest chance to see what would discipleship look like. And you start getting a taste of that future and see the life change that might come from it. If you're there, and I do believe there are a lot of us here who are there and they're giving it all and it's absolutely amazing. There's a piece of that that we need to start adding on to after that. You could be a disciple of Jesus, become a clone of Jesus, means you have to start doing the things that Jesus did. And where he said, I will teach you to fish for people. That means we then start asking the question and challenging and inviting people into that, into discipleship, not under us, uh, discipleship under Jesus. Don't get caught into that bottom of who are you being discipled under? I hope it's not me. I hope you're being discipled by Jesus. I hope it's not some other pastor. I hope it's not somebody who you can purchase on Costco, uh, on TV, whatever. You need to be discipled by Jesus, but you need to be inviting people to be discipled by Jesus. That's how the invitation happens, whether it's me giving you that first invitation this morning, or if you're in there, you're doing it. And if you're here and this is nuts and you don't enjoy it, Start taking a real honest look, like the creators of The Simpsons, at the future ahead. What's going on up ahead? Is that worth it? Is there more ahead? Is it worth considering a future of eternity that Jesus provides in a proper design that might be part of a bigger picture than just you? You're not the king of your own life. So that's the invitation. I just want to pray this morning. God, thank you for the Gospels. God, thank you for giving us an invitation, God. You invite all of us here, wherever we're at, God. Not the elite of the elite of the elite, but God, us just the way we are. God, I thank you so much for your discipleship, God, that it is a new creation, a recreation. That's, part, that's starting to undo all the bad things. God, you're making all the sad things come untrue. And we're in the middle of that tension, God. And we still live with the suffering and the disasters and the war in our life but I hope that we can start to see more and more and more of your future ahead for us, God, that we can use that hope the same way that the early believers that the Gospel Mark was written to faced persecution because they knew there was a bright future ahead of them. God, in our world, when things are turbulent, I, I pray that you give us a clear insight and a clear look into that same hope and that same future, God, and that we live like we have hope, God, like we are part of your future. God, be with everyone as they go here this morning, all those who are joining us online and who in, in take in on this uh, the week later. God, I just pray that we dive into your gospel message here and we encounter you. Amen. I just want to read you just as we go off. We sang it this morning. Uh, the, the blessing song is coming right out of Numbers chapter 6. It's the original benediction blessing. And I was going to read it as I send you off. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And your family's peace. And your children peace. And your children and your children. And we repeat that over because it's beautiful, right? Because it's not just about us. There's something bigger going on. Thanks, everyone. Have a great long weekend. And go in peace.